Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 209 The Way of Everyday Life. We're joined this week by Zen teacher Karen Mazen Miller to explore what it means to make practice one's life and life one's practice. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm thrilled to be on Skype video today with a very special guest, Karen Mazen Miller. Karen, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day as a mother and as a Zen priest and teacher to uh, join the Buddhist Geeks and to geek out with us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I've ever geeked out, but there's a first time for everything. (laughs) Well, I can see you're holding an Apple microphone in your hand, so you've definitely got geek potential already. I can see that. Oh, oh, super. Cool. And and just a couple little biographical bits before we jump right into the conversation. I wanted to mention that you're an author. You've written uh, most recently a book called Hand Wash Cold, Care Instructions for an Ordinary Life. And you also wrote a few years before that a book called Mama Zen. A lot of people refer to you as that, actually, as Mama Zen. Is that true? Yes, they do. They think somehow that's my my name. So I make a point of answering to Whatever I'm called. (laughs) That's where my practice comes in handy. So, yeah, I found that eventually people actually think that that's my persona. Interesting. And you actually are a mother and a wife. So that is a a big part of your life, of your day-to-day existence. Yes. And you also are a Zen priest and teacher. You um, are located in the Los Angeles area and practice in the Hazy Moon Zen Center community, which is such a cool name. And what does that mean, Hazy Moon? Well, it actually comes from a line, a verse that says something like, you know, no matter how much we sweep the mind, we can never empty it and nothing compares to a hazy moon on an autumn night. That's where it comes from. In other words, although we we aspire to some absolute state of perfection and uh, enlightenment and truth, uh, this is the realm we live in. And a hazy moon is good enough. Mm. And before we kind of jumped into the main topic, which has to do with parenting and, and two, really more primarily with living this life, what does it mean to live this life? I wanted to ask you maybe a bit about how you got into Zen, because I understand you came to it a little later in life, not sort of right out of your teens, you were practicing Zen, but it sort of happened a little bit later. Vince, actually, I think of that as the early part of my life. <laughs> but I promise you, I don't take any offense. I tell people that I came to Zen, I think, the way we come to everything, true and lasting in our life, which is the hard way. <laughs> it wasn't a deliberate choice as though I was making a lifestyle or philosophical choice, kind of like choosing a political party, a way to live, a way to improve my life. I came at the bitter end of a particular stage in my life. We all have the opportunity to reach this point where we are, frankly, disappointed in love and marriage, disillusioned by work, and depressed. 
I happened to find a book on my own shelf in my own home one night when I had trouble sleeping. And uh, many times, too, what happens is when we're about to enter a, a time in our life where we have the opportunity to really recognize the truth for the first time, we have difficulty doing those things that are so simple. We have difficulty getting through the day, getting through the night. And I was wandering my house, and I found a book on my shelf that I had not put there. Someone else had left it behind. And I picked it up, and I read it. And even though I had no idea even how to pronounce the title, it was the Tao Te Ching. <laughs> I didn't know what it was or how it got there. I read it, and that particular night, I found it to be the truest thing I'd ever encountered. It was completely self-illuminating. And I was hooked. And so I began to seek out, just naturally, the way to really initiate myself in a spiritual life. I started yoga. I got a zafu. And in those days, we used to have to do things. I highly recommend this, even though it's quite archaic. You actually go and look for something in the real world. You get up out of your chair and you turn off Skype. And you go find something. And it, what I looked for was someone to teach me how to meditate. I happened to be living in Texas at the time. And I had a sense that there was absolutely nothing like that in Texas, <laughs> which may or may not have been true. It is certainly not true now. But I picked up the phone and I dialed directory assistance and I called out to Los Angeles and I signed up to take a meditation retreat, a beginner's meditation retreat. And when I showed up, the person who taught me how to sit was Maizumi Roshi. That was the beginning. It was an unmistakable event. And my life simply ordered itself after that point around the practice. Were you a parent at that point, or was that something that came later? Yeah, it came later. At that point, I had ended my first marriage. I'd had a series of disappointing turns in my love life. I had had a business and a successful business, but I had um, achieved the measure of success that many of us as young people aspire to, and I had found it to be unfulfilling. And so I was really adrift, alienated in my own life. I had exhausted all the ways that you can distract, divert, entertain, impress, expand, enhance your life in the conventional ways. And so I was literally at the end of my rope. Even now I joke, frankly, it doesn't sound like much of a joke, but there's a, you'll have to get a sense of my humor. I often say about people who come to their first retreat or come to a retreat center that I really wish they'd have their breakdown first because that kind of an opening that really gives rise to such desperate, really, a desperate, eager urgency about this business. Because otherwise, we'll just drift away and find something else that's very short-term that will give us some uh, lift, a sh very short-term lift. But we'll do that, and then eventually we settle back down to it. Life follows this. It's an irrevocable trajectory. I mean, there's really no way out, Vince. And we grow older, if we're lucky, and uh, we encounter hard karma right on schedule. And so the significance of this really reveals itself to us as we go through life. It's very fortunate if we can, for some karmic reason, for some reason, come to this with a serious intent early in our life, 
I mean, we're really privileged if we do that, but for the rest of us, we have to wait till we fall apart. It sounds like such an almost archetypal description of the spiritual it path. It is. It is. It's all Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, really, it is. It's, it's, there's only one story. Mm. Yeah. When we realize that mythology and analogy and even the story of Buddha is simply the story of the human life. And all of us in some way, when we can relate to that so personally, that's where the meaning comes. That's where really the direction comes. We say, of course, that's my life. That's my life. So that's when it comes out of the realm of being something, well, let me explore this metaphysically. Let me explore this philosophically. It really becomes, how can we live and how can I live one more day? That's when we can really make something of our practice. And it seems to me that one of the features of life for many people is being a parent and certainly having parents is true for everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's a guarantee. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, one thing that you've written about in the past is this sort of relationship between, on the one hand, being a mother, being part of a family, and then also the commitment to Zen practice. There was one line in an article that you wrote for the Shambhala Sun piece that really struck out for me. Um, you wrote that those of us with families practicing on this balancing point, wobbling between the should and the could, the can and the can't, the leave and the stay, the home and the monastery. It's so interesting to describe these two points. And I wondered if you could talk a, a little bit about how do you work with that? And then how do you um, recommend other people work with that very clearly challenging paradox? Sure, sure, sure. Well, the truth is that no matter what kind of, what form our life takes, we always get the sense that one part of it is battling another part of it, that one aspect of life is compromised by another. And the reality is that that's not the case. But invariably, that's how we think about our life. And that way we think about our life when we segment it into facets and parcels and parts, that's the nature of our dualistic thinking. And that's the nature of delusion. We feel that we are always kind of at odds, that our life is at odds with our life. So it's not necessarily that motherhood or family life per se is a unique focus of my life. It's simply my life as it is. It's really what my life is. Now, the previous question you asked, when I was 36 or 37 and I began my practice, one of the things I knew in the marrow of my bones is that I would never get married again and that I would never be a parent. Because I, ha I really saw through that and I said, you know, that just doesn't work for me. So, of course naturally, that's where my life <laughs> ended up, because it was the very thing that I was resisting. So what I like to encourage people to see is that our life is our practice itself, as it is. Our practice is our life itself, as it is. And that the way to intimately engage with your life as it is, is to make wherever you are in your life, the point of practice. So naturally, I practice as a wife and a mother because that's where my life is. Some people practice as farmers and fishermen and Buddhist geeks and uh, rocket scientists and customer service representatives. Wherever you are is to be able to see that really clearly. So it doesn't matter really how your karma, I'll keep saying that, or how your life manifests. The point is to be intimate. And when we're really intimate with our lives, completely 
totally spontaneously engage with it as it is, we don't wobble. Wobbling doesn't really take place in life. It always takes place in our heads. We're always wobbling in our heads. That paradox of this part versus that part is always in our heads. It's never in real life. In real life, everything is always perfectly in balance. You notice the walls behind you I see have not collapsed. The ceiling has not fallen. The earth has not shifted. You're very steady right there, present in what's happening right now. When we can attend to whatever is happening in our life as it's happening, we have a saying in Zen, we cover the ground where we stand. So you have my complete and utmost attention right now, Vince, and it's not a problem. I don't feel as though one part of my life is out of balance. However, most of the time where we live is in our heads. And in this head, which is so highly developed, which is so uber-cultivated. We have cultivated this egocentric aspect of discrimination and judgment where we see, oh my gosh, I really should be doing something else. I really ought to be over here. This part of my life is more important. That part of my life, no, is more important. And so that's where we feel out of balance. It's our own judgment of what we should be doing. And in truth, what's happening always in front of your life is flowing. It's rising and falling. It occurs according to the rhythm of time and circumstance. And when we judge it as either something we want, something we like, something we don't like, something that is the right thing or the wrong thing, we confuse ourselves. Family life is really a very, very powerful place to practice because of how intensely and continuously we judge it. The truth is that it's almost never the way we want it to be. You know, it's never meeting our ideal or the standard or expectation of how it should be. And so it's a very, very fertile place to practice. When I first became pregnant, although it was certainly with every intention, I was a very serious practitioner and I went in and apologized to my teacher. I was so silly because Like everyone else, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be a big disruption, a big derailment. I know I'm going to disappoint my teacher. And I went in, and this is how good a teacher he is. He laughed, but not in a disparaging way, because he saw that I didn't yet realize, I hadn't yet seen that I only have one life. I only have one life. My life never gets in the way of my life. And when I can accord myself with it, then I'm really bringing my practice to life in my life as it is. And that's a very, very profound thing. That's a very profound thing. Everyone has that opportunity. I'll be frank here. I think that those of us with family lives are not at all impeded in our practice. I think essentially we go to the head of the class. Because <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> mm. It's so interesting. And I, I really love this perspective. And I, I hear it a lot from not just in the Zen tradition, but especially in the Zen tradition. And I, I hear it from different teachers too in different places in, in the Buddhist world. And you know, it's so interesting kind of pulling from my own personal experience. For so many years, I've been married for several years now, and for so many years when with Emily and I, there's a sense that there was a dualism between doing long retreats, you know, going on month, two month, three month retreats, and cultivating these incredible states of clarity and, and going through this process that was at times incredible and, and challenging. And then on the other hand, 
having a family and, and being a father, that idea did seem at odds for a long time. And I know, like you're saying, the way you spoke to your teacher, it felt like there was something that did feel at odds for you at that time too. And I wonder maybe a question about why that seems to be such a common thing in the spiritual traditions themselves. Um, because it really does come through in, in, in some of the teachings. I, I'd say less so in Zen from my experience. But maybe if you could um, maybe share what, your thoughts on that. First off, I'll say that there are many really wrong-headed teachings. <laughs> so we can be confused by confused teachings, the teachings that come from delusion. And, you know, and they're there. They're present in the historic record. And so let's set that aside. But I think really what we usually have to work with is our own idealized notion of what practice looks like and what our spiritual life looks like. It's colored by, I don't know what, maybe it's colored by the picture of monastic life. You know, we carry that with us. And we might blame, we can blame external sources for that imagery, but nonetheless, we hold it ourselves, and that's our internal judgment. And you see, that's really the crux of practice is to recognize that we ourselves harbor those notions. We ourselves harbor those judgments. We might project them out, but then we react to our projection so that we feel, very rarely do we feel unduly inflated by ourselves. Mostly we feel insufficient and inadequate. So there's no question that sustained meditation and sustained periods of meditation, that's the model that we have, that's the template that was carried forward. The very same way of thinking, I'll tell you, is what makes parenthood so hard. Because we have in our minds an idea that we're going to do it a certain way, and it's definitely going to be better than we were raised, and we're going to be a different kind of parent, and we're going to do a lot of research, and we're going to devote ourselves to it, and we're going to have all the right answers. So that's the place. This is the place that all all our trouble originates. And so uh, it's true. Practice makes that clear. But I was really refreshed and encouraged when you take a look at, say, in my tradition, the Zen monastic tradition, that was preceded by the Chinese Zen monastic tradition, which was preceded by, uh, by India and the time of Buddha, in which, frankly, everyone was an itinerant. Everyone made pilgrimage. You know, there really was no particular gathering except in the most practical and feasible time of year, which was during the rainy season. So the Sangha came together because it was really practical. And then they practiced together in in the form of the Sangha, and other times they went out on their own. Well, it's really fascinating. It became fascinating to me that when Zen was brought to China, and maybe it was because of just the peculiarities of the landscape, the topography, and just how practical it was, the monastic form originated, in which there were fixed locations to practice as a sangha. And monks took sanctuary in monasteries. But you know what really happened in monasteries? I mean, sure, they sat a lot, but they also farmed. They cultivated fields. They had housework to do. They cooked dinner. It's a household. Human beings have to function in that form. And so then I began to say, hey, wait a minute. My Zen forebears were homemakers, just like me. And Zen is sometimes called, and rightfully so, the way of everyday life. 
it's a paradox that we have to seek training. We have to go through a process that we really have to go through kind of a contrived practice form in order to arrive back at the point that we can be perfectly ordinary and that we can really live fully in our lives where they are and as they are. But, you know, we really do have to release ourselves from the imprisonment of our own ideas of what practice looks like, the form that it takes, um, how many hours we spend on a cushion, how many weeks away. Otherwise, what we're doing is denying and resisting the reality of our lives. Some people, the reality of their lives is that they move into a monastery. For others of us, it doesn't look that way. And when we stop struggling with it, then the opportunity opens up for us to really engage with our practice every day of the week. We can do it at home. We can do it at the center. We can do it in weeks away and weekends away. It's very tempering. You know, in other words, it's really where we meet the flame. And my teacher would tell me, Mason, Mason, you are the lotus blooming in the flame. I mean, your life is really tough. A monastery is not a particularly good place to practice. <laughs> you may not rub up against each other in the same way. Cool. Thank you for that perspective. And then I feel that my next question is already being answered, but I do want to highlight a, a certain part of it, which is that you're talking about the different forms that that may take, that meditation may take even, the form of our practice. I'm wondering if you could, because you, you mentioned in Hand Wash Cold that there's a lot of misunderstanding about meditation. And you write that, in fact, that's pretty much all meditation is, the process of seeing how very much you've misunderstood about it and everything else. And what's so interesting about that to me and what I wanted to ask you about is just given that, it seems like meditation in that sense isn't limited to formal cushion practice. It sounds like you're defining meditation in a much broader way. And I wonder if you could say something about that. Sure. But I also don't want to discount yes. first the formal because Good. I couldn't. I tell people I can't practice at the sink unless I practice at the cushion. So let's mm. be real here. That's the easiest place to practice is on a cushion. I mean, really, the easiest place. And we all start with these training wheels. And essentially, that's what zazen is, at least in the formal seated posture. I mean, that's just the most efficient, efficacious. That's the easy way. So I don't want to discount that. Essentially, what I, what I meant when I wrote that is that if we have any understanding at all about anything, including meditation or our practice, that's a misunderstanding. What the practice shows us is the limits of what we can understand. So when we first sit down, when we first sit on a cushion, we bring to it, oh my gosh, what's the first thing that comes up? Well, I thought it would be different than this. I thought it would be easier. I thought I could do it. I thought I would like it. I thought it would make me happy. I thought it would be calm. Instead, when we sit there, we feel like we're on fire. And we tell ourselves immediately, I can't do it. Well, I tried it. How many times has this happened to you, Vince? You run into somebody and they say, oh yeah, I tried meditation. I tried it. I can't do it. Very often then what happens is people want to immediately go to a form of practice that they can do. You've just really got to be honest with yourself what you're doing when you do that. I mean, certainly we can cultivate samadhi watching television. I was going to say <laughs> TV would be that practice for me. <laughs> sure. We just have to be really clear that that's a very superficial form of samadhi. Mm -hmm. But then if we stay with 
meditation practice, then we let all that initial discomfort, we let all of our preconceptions go, and we end up what? With more, you know, conceptions. So we're always conceptualizing our life. For instance, then say, you know, you're kind of a mid-level, you've been doing it for some time, meditation, and you look up and you go, wait a minute, I thought I was going to get something. I thought I was going to figure it out. I thought I was going to attain something. I thought I was going to have an experience. Or I thought this meditation period would be like last, you know. We're always doing that. And so that's really a very, that's how we refine in our practice. Always coming up against that place where we've hardened our experience. You know, we've taken an experience of life, essentially, and we've turned it into a concept a measurement, a standard, and we evaluate against it. So that happens over and over and over again. But at the same time, you know, the great masters say, Zazen has nothing at all to do with sitting, standing, or lying down, or walking around. In other words, if you actually are bringing your non-distracted attention, awareness to your life... You're going to be on the phone, you're going to be cooking dinner, you're going to be having a discussion, you're going to be driving. I mean, nothing is excluded. But can you really be honest with yourself that that's what you're bringing to that experience and that's how you're engaging with your experience? That's why we make a life of it. And that's why practice goes on forever. It goes on forever. That's why we say Shakyamuni Buddha is still refining his practice. There's no end or bottom to it. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and Pragmatic Dharma Provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.